you know, I think this is a, a whole new era in, in alopecia areata. And I, I, I really think that's an important message for your listeners is that we have taken a new turn in, in alopecia. Hey everyone, welcome to the Alopecia Project. This is the podcast that uncovers the world of alopecia, an autoimmune condition that results in various patterns of hair loss. In today's episode, we interview Dr. Jeff Donovan, a dermatologist who specializes in treating hair loss. We'll be chatting about the basics of alopecia, treatments, and what's coming up in the world of alopecia research. Check it out. Dr. Donovan, we are so excited to have you here today. This is a really exciting episode of the Alopecia Project. Uh, We have no one other than the alopecia expert himself, Dr. Donovan, on our show today. Thank you so much for being here, Jeff. Well, thanks for having me. You know, I'm uh, excited to be here and uh, congratulations on all your efforts to put these podcasts together. I think they're really valuable for everybody and uh, I'm really honored to participate. Thank you so much. We are so excited to have you here. Um, Your name is one that comes up a lot from people who have alopecia. So it feels amazing to be able to have you on our show and and get some, you know, information from the expert himself. Thank you. (laughs) So why don't we just get started and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? So I'm a dermatologist and um, I practice in Canada. I practice in British Columbia and, you know, it became very clear to me early on in my training days that uh, hair loss was the area of medicine that that I really wanted to focus on and there was no other area that was my calling and so I I chose this path very early and um, as part of my training I worked with a number of experts in this field and uh, individuals who uh, see a lot of hair loss patients, uh, both in Canada and uh, United States and around the world, and just sort of immersed myself in in everything, both clinical and research that that I could find that would allow me to gain knowledge to to help people, and um, decided ultimately to uh, set up my practice dedicated solely to hair loss. And so I'm a dermatologist and. A dermatologist goes through training in in medical school and then after medical school does dermatology. And dermatology is generally a specialty of hair and nails and skin, but most people think of dermatology as a specialty of the skin. But I decided after my dermatology uh, training was finished that the skin and the nails were were not the area that I was to, to focus on, but rather the hair. And so Uh, set up my practice dedicated just to hair loss. That's fantastic. Can you talk a little bit more about your practice and and what you guys do over there? So my practice is um, a practice which sees patients both young and old. So we see individuals from newborns to very elderly with hair loss concerns. A part of my practice sees individuals with concerns about too much hair, but the vast majority of my practice is, is hair loss. And alopecia areata is certainly an important uh, and you know, significant component of my practice. But we see all types of hair loss conditions, uh, ranging from immunological conditions to hormonal conditions to uh, hair loss from chemotherapy and cancer treatments. Um, so there's about 100 reasons to lose hair, and uh, alopecia areata is certainly a very important one of them. But, but hair loss is a very 
fascinating area just in terms of how many reasons there are for humans to lose hair. So we see patients that often come with having seen a physician in the past, sometimes several physicians, and their questions are often, I've tried this and I've tried that and doesn't seem to be working and what do I do next? And so we see a lot of challenging cases. And the thing that I think is really important um, you know, for this podcast, but also in my practice is, is that there's always reason to be hopeful that um, you know, even in situations where something's not working, there are always options that are available and uh, the way I treat hair loss now in 2019 is different than I treated it in 2018. And so every year it's changing and uh, the way we treat hair loss is going to change even, even more dramatically in the years ahead. So it's a really exciting time to be in this field. Well, that's great to hear. I think uh, let's, we'll definitely talk more about those, those treatments later on in the episode. But let's kind of go back to the basics and talk about, as you said, hair loss and what alopecia really is. Yeah, so alopecia is an autoimmune disease. And what we mean when we use that term is that the immune system is activated. And so as I say to my patients, it's not that your immune system is too weak, it's that your immune system is too good. And that often comes as a surprise to people because we're so we're so you know geared to think in this day and age that we need to boost our immune system. But alopecia areata is a condition where the immune system is is boosted. And the immune system is specifically targeting the hair follicle. And so when you look under the scalp, if you were to do a scalp biopsy, you can actually see that there's inflammation around the bottom of the hairs deep, deep under the scalp. And so the inflammation isn't, isn't in the middle of the hair follicle or up top at the, near the skin. It's, it's way deep down in the bulb. And just like a plant, a hair follicle has a bulb. And that's where this inflammation lies and when that inflammation is there, hair follicles can't grow, and so they fall out. And if we can get rid of that inflammation with various treatments, we can get these hairs back growing. And so an important goal of treatment is to figure out how to, how to get rid of that inflammation. But the, the big question long term is how can, we, how can we tell the immune system not to get activated in the first place? And how can we tone down these autoimmune diseases. And, uh, and so this, this subject is, is important not only to alopecia areata, but all autoimmune diseases that affect the body. And so alopecia areata is this group of autoimmune diseases. I think a lot of people with alopecia, one of their biggest questions is always, you know, where does alopecia come from? And, and we hear things like, you know, it comes from stress, it comes from diet, all these different factors. You know, what do you have to say to, to that? Where does alopecia come from in a patient? Yeah, it's such a great question. And um, some of those answers are, are more clear now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. And we now know that a large portion of alopecia is inherited. And so a large proportion is genetic. And when I say that to patients or their family, the, the immediate response is, you know, I'm hearing you say it's genetic, but I'm telling you no one in my family is affected. So how can it be genetic? And so what we've come to understand is that an individual with alopecia is probably born with the chance to develop this condition. And so they, they, they have these genes from the day they're born 
And having those specific genes gives them the chance to develop alopecia later in life. What's less clear is what actually causes it to come out. And how can someone have the gene but never develop alopecia and another person have the gene and they develop alopecia at age 8 or age 10 or 20? And so we know that there's these factors in the environment that, that cause alopecia to come out in someone who carries these genes. And the list is pretty long, as you just said, and, and it's, it's quite varied. So for some people, it's infection. For some people, it's stress. For some people, uh, it could be various types of medications. And so there's a long list of things that we think activate the immune system and tell the immune system to, uh, you know, to respond. And in many of these autoimmune diseases, what we think happens is the immune system is woken up to, to do something. And in the case of an infection, for example, if someone gets an infection, the immune system is woken up to fight that infection. And that's a great thing for the person. But what ends up happening is the immune system is so hyperactivated that it ends up thinking that, gee, maybe I should also patrol the, the scalp and the hair follicles and, and maybe I should um, create inflammation targeted to these hair follicles. And so we think that something triggers the immune system in the first place and that ultimately causes the immune system to, uh, to activate in a in an incorrect manner that causes the hair loss that we see. So it's an autoimmune disease. One is born with it, but there's all these other factors that cause it to come out. And within the umbrella of alopecia, there are a couple different kinds, right? So what are the, what are the few different kinds of alopecia? So the main types of alopecia are alopecia areata, totalis, and universalis. And then there's a number of other types, which, which I'll mention, but alopecia areata is the main type where patients lose hair in circular areas on the scalp. Other areas of the body can be affected. Any area can be affected that has hair, but generally speaking, individuals with alopecia areata often have patches of hair loss. There are some individuals that just have one patch, and then there's individuals that have two or three or four or 10 patches. And so some dermatologists will give this condition different names if it has one patch or many patches, but it's all the same. It's alopecia areata. And when all of the scalp hair is lost, we call that alopecia totalis. And so when there's a total loss of scalp hair, and then when all the body hair is lost, we call that universalis. There's another important form that many of your listeners will be familiar with, and that's a form of hair loss that affects the back of the scalp. So some people develop hair loss predominantly in the back, just above the neck area and around the ears, and that is called the ophiasis form. And we don't understand fully why this particular area is an area that the immune system is particularly geared to target, but it's a, a common way that the alopecia presents itself. And so uh, alopecia areata ophiasis is another common way. And so these are the main kind of alopecia forms that we see. Wow. How would you go diagnosing somebody with alopecia? 
So for the most part, alopecia is said to be a clinical diagnosis. And so what that means is that by looking at the scalp and with these tools called dermatoscopes, uh, which are essentially fancy magnifying glasses or forms of microscopes, we can make the diagnosis. And so it's said to be a clinical diagnosis. And usually a patient who has alopecia has circular areas of hair loss first. And within that patch of hair loss, there is uh, no hair growing. And around the outside of that circular or oval area of hair loss, there may be these small hairs called exclamation mark hairs. And so a, a dermatologist or a physician, when they're looking at the scalp, may, may comment that there's exclamation mark hairs. And these are essentially really short hairs that are about four or five millimeters in size and are thick at the top and thin at the bottom as they enter the scalp. And those are exclamation mark hairs. And so when you see a patch of hair loss that is bare in the middle and has these exclamation mark hairs around the outside, the diagnosis is, is alopecia areata with a high, high degree of certainty. There's, a, there's no need for a biopsy. There are some forms of alopecia areata which are challenging to diagnose. And so not everyone who has alopecia develops these circular areas of hair loss to begin with. Some people develop just thinning of their hair. And so over the course of a week or two or four, their hair is thinner. And that looks just like the type of hair loss that people develop when they lose weight or they're stressed or they have some type of infection. And so that's a special form of alopecia called alopecia areata diffusa. Most forms of alopecia are these circular forms that may grow back on their own, may fall out on their own, and in some more advanced cases, it goes on to totalis or universalis. But alopecia is a clinical diagnosis, meaning we don't need uh, biopsies. And the other point I'll mention is that you know, patients often say, do you, do you need blood work to diagnose alopecia? We don't need blood work to diagnose alopecia, but we know that many patients with alopecia areata have a a higher chance to have certain abnormalities in their blood work. And so that's why blood work for things like thyroid problems and iron and vitamin D are so, so important. But um, that's not needed to make the diagnosis. It's needed just to figure out other things that might be abnormal. Wow, that's so interesting. I think Sarah and I, we can never seem to remember how to tell the difference between all the different kinds of alopecia. So I think you really just helped us clear the air a little bit. So thank you personally for that, because I think we'll we'll probably not mess it up as much now, will we, Sarah? No. <laughs> and um, Dr. Donovan, so with some of your patients, um, something that we've noticed just in the process of doing this podcast is often when we're talking to people who have alopecia, they often have other autoimmune diseases. You know, for me, like I have psoriasis, so that's another autoimmune disease. Um, is that something that you see in a lot of patients that you have come to visit you? It sure is. And whenever one has one autoimmune disease affecting the body, they have a higher chance to develop a second autoimmune disease. And so the three autoimmune conditions that are increased the most in individuals with alopecia are thyroid autoimmune diseases, and skin autoimmune disease known as atopic dermatitis or what we call eczema. And the third one is vitiligo where you lose pigment in the skin. But those are the top three, but there's a long list of other autoimmune diseases that can sometimes be present. 
And so whenever I meet a patient with alopecia, you want to screen for the possibility they might have another autoimmune disease. You can feel perfectly normal with a thyroid problem. And so that's why ordering blood tests is so important because the patient might not say to you, I think I have a thyroid problem. So you, you need to do these blood tests. But patients will often say, you know, I've had this itchy skin rash since I was three years old. And that's eczema. Sometimes a patient will mention their skin pigment is off. That's vitiligo, but that's not super common. But all, for all these other conditions like psoriasis, for uh, inflammation in the bowel, for all these other autoimmune diseases, it's really important to um, kind of ask head to toe about any symptoms that the patient's experiencing that uh, might not be what they experienced uh, in the distant, distant past. So we have to always be thinking about other autoimmune diseases. Are other um, autoimmune diseases, do, do those tend to be the most kind of, kind of commonalities within your patients who have alopecia? Do you tend to find other similarities or other kind of patterns um, amongst your patients? Yeah, for sure. And so definitely the most common is the thyroid abnormality. And so... We know that individuals with alopecia that have thyroid abnormalities or some of these other autoimmune diseases may have a little bit more uh, resistant or stubborn kind of alopecia. And so I often see patients in my practice that come to see me after having tried many treatments and have not had success on certain treatments. And so it's quite common in my practice that I see patients with autoimmune diseases because uh, these tend to be the patients that have a little more resistant, uh, resistant alopecia. And so these are really important to, to screen for. I think now we can move on to probably, you know, the biggest thing that we always see people talking about and what all the discussion is about when it comes to alopecia, and that is treatments. There's, you know, a lot of different information about there about some of the things that you can do to help with your alopecia. Can you just give us kind of an overview of some of the main treatments that you might prescribe to a patient who comes to you with alopecia? Yeah, there are probably about 25 or 30 different treatments that are on my list of treatments that can be considered. Typically in a, in a practice, I might use five or six or seven of them in in a typical week. But in a typical month or typical year, I I probably would touch on 20 or 25 of these. Before I get into treatments, I I think the important thing to mention is sometimes we don't need treatment. For some people with the first stages of alopecia, which is the patches that form, there is a chance that the hair will grow back. So when I see a child who's four years old who comes in with a patch of alopecia, we will eventually discuss options. Should we be using steroid medication? Should we be using uh, topical minoxidil? But the first thing I'll mention to the parents is we do have an option of just waiting to see if it comes back. And so alopecia has spontaneous regrowth in some patients. And so that's really important to keep in mind. We can feel very anxious and upset when we see these patches of hair loss. We have to remember that in a large percentage of individuals who have just developed their alopecia, meaning they haven't had it for many years, but they've just developed it, that there's a chance it's going to come back on its own. And so that's on the top of the list. But 
To look at treatments, uh, I think of treatments in terms of basically four main groups. And the first group is the topical treatments, so things that we rub on our scalps. This is mainly topical steroids that are rubbed onto the scalp so that these medicines can dissolve underneath and chase away the inflammation. Then we have steroid injections, which are a method of getting some of these medicines under the scalp very quickly and efficiently. And so steroid injections are, are the second group of treatments that we have. And patients uh, and, and your listeners will be familiar with Kenalog injections or triamcinolone injections. These are steroid injections. I've been getting Kenalog injections for the past 10 years. So I am so familiar with those needles, I got to say. And then we have the pills. And the pills are the third group for a good reason, because we often use them as a later type of a treatment. And they include many treatments, including prednisone and corticosteroids to other medicines that weaken the immune system like methotrexate, cyclosporin, sulfasalazine, and these new so-called JAK inhibitors. Um, but there's a long list of immunosuppressant medications that can be used. And then the final group is a, is a group of treatments which has been around for a long, long time. And some of your listeners will be familiar with them, but uh, not everyone is, unfortunately. And these are treatments which cause allergic reactions on the scalp on purpose. And these include treatments like difenciprone or DPCP, squaric acid, and anthralin. And these are topical medications that a patient or their physician rubs on the scalp to create an itchy, irritated red scalp. And the reason that we're creating the red, itchy, irritated scalp is to trick the immune system into patrolling the scalp to fight off this chemical that we're putting on the scalp instead of the immune system patrolling the scalp to attack the hair follicle. And so there's this fourth group of treatment, which is called the sensitizers, and they include DPCP, squaric acid, and antolin. So these are the four main groups. And... Um, Sometimes we borrow treatments from, from various groups. So a patient might be on topical steroids, but also be receiving steroid injections. A patient could be on uh, prednisone for a month or two and also uh, be receiving other treatments like topical steroids or maybe even topical minoxidil, which is, is also known to some of your listeners as Rogaine. That's the popular brand name. So we sometimes combine these treatments as well. A lot of people who we speak to with this podcast often talk about success rates of different treatments that they've that they've um, overcome. What what do you have to say in terms of you know what tends to be more successful in terms of different treatments? When do you kind of switch up treatments? What works for people? Yeah, and that's really such a great question. And when someone says to me how well do steroid injections work? My answer to them usually is, I need more information. And that's a frustrating response. But when I'm asked how well steroid injections work, I want to know, are we talking about a small patch, the size of a, of a quarter? Or are we talking about many patches of hair loss? Is the patient eight years old or 25? 
Did they develop their hair loss 10 years ago or did they develop it one month ago? Do they have thyroid problems and other autoimmune diseases? Do they have a family history? Do they have changes in their nails, which also tells me it might be a little bit more stubborn disease? And so I really need to get all these pieces of information and plug them in, the, in this sort of uh, the back of my mind, but this computer generator, if you wish, because that allows me to get a sense of how likely it is for these treatments to work. And so someone who develops a coin-shaped area of hair loss, and they just developed it last month, and they're really healthy, they don't have any autoimmune diseases, and they've never heard of alopecia in their family, and they're 20 or 30, they have about a 90% chance uh, to grow their hair back with steroid injections. So it can be very high in that scenario. Someone who has total loss of their scalp hair, alopecia totalis, and they've been having alopecia totalis for 10 years, and they haven't experienced any regrowth over the last 10 years, their chances of regrowth with these steroid injections are very, very low, uh, you know, probably less than 5%. So that's why all this information is so important. But generally speaking, in the early stages of alopecia, topical steroids help about 60% of patients. Steroid injections help 80 to 90% of patients. In the early stages, these pills help uh, a great deal as well, but we often don't use them in the early stages because these other treatments have such high success rates. And so if a patient has a coin-shaped area of hair loss and they have a 90% chance of growing their hair back with steroid injections, then we likely won't give them a pill that weakens their entire immune system because the odds are so good they're going to grow it back with this relatively safe treatment. But if someone has alopecia for a year or, or more and they have quite extensive hair loss, then treatments like DPCP or squaric acid or anthralin may have anywhere from a 30 to 60% chance of really helping that patient. Immunosuppressive medications like methotrexate may help you know, between 40 and 50% of patients with more advanced or extensive alopecia. And the one thing we've learned in the last three or four years is that there's a new group of drugs that is really standing out as the most effective treatments we have so far for alopecia. And these are the so-called JAK inhibitors. And they go by names like tofacitinib and ruxolitinib and baricitinib. And these are medications which are still in the early stages of being used in alopecia. They're, they're what one might consider the research stage, but we certainly do prescribe them because they are available in the world. But these medications can help 60 to 80% of patients with more extensive alopecia. And so they are finding themselves in, the, in a class of their own because they're new, um, they're quite expensive, uh, limited availability, not all physicians are familiar with them yet. And so there are some limitations to, to getting these medications to, to patients, but um, they certainly are a very, very exciting group of treatments that are turning out to be uh, even more effective than some of these previous treatments that I mentioned. I think that's a great segue into kind of our next topic, which would be what does the future of research in alopecia look like? What kinds of topics is, is your uh, 
practice looking at right now. I know I've seen in a lot of communities talk about the, this JAK inhibitor uh, treatments kind of popping up more and more. So what have you seen in the last little bit and what do you predict is the next kind of trend? You know, I think this is a, a whole new era in, in alopecia areata. And I, I, I really think that's an important message for your listeners is that we have taken a new turn in, in alopecia. 10 or 15 years ago, there was a limited number of people around the world which were doing world-class research in alopecia. Now, there's a number of top-notch research institutions around the world that are doing incredible work. And the field is progressing at a, at a very fast rate. And so some of the treatments which we are just getting into now, including these JAK inhibitors, may turn out to be treatments that we see uh, and are used in the near future. But because this field is moving ahead so fast, there may even be newer treatments. So it's really an exciting time. And one of the reasons this new era started was because some incredible work from Columbia University uh, about five or 10 years ago pinpointed some of the key genes that are responsible for alopecia. And this research showed that there's about eight to 10 genes that a person is born with that really increase the chance to develop alopecia later in life. And by studying these genes, it became clear what kind of treatments might be developed on account of this information. And so because this research in the genetic aspect was uncovered, new research unfolded saying, hey, let's explore these certain treatments. And because of that research, it became clear that a lot of the drugs that are used in rheumatoid arthritis and a lot of the drugs that are used in diabetes, these may actually help alopecia. And it turned out that that was correct. And so from some fascinating research, it ended up showing that rheumatoid arthritis drugs could be used in alopecia, and that's where these JAK inhibitors came on board. And so we are interested in understanding these JAK inhibitors, how they work. There are many new JAK inhibitors that drug companies are making. And so we are familiar now with tofacitinib and ruxolitinib, but in the years ahead, there's going to be even more JAK inhibitors that we will become familiar with. And these may turn out to be more effective. They may turn out to be less effective, but there's a whole new era in understanding these medications. There's a whole new era in understanding other treatments that, that could be effective. So we will, we will await that, that kind of work. And so we have an interest in these JAK inhibitors. We're also interested in understanding some of these triggers. And so as we talked about early, earlier, you know, what, what triggers alopecia in the first place? The infections, the, the low low you know, mineral contents, uh, let's say a person has low iron or low vitamin D, how much of a trigger is this? How much of a trigger is stress? And so understanding more about some of these triggers and, and, and what we can do with this information is, is extremely important. And then, of course, really understanding how we can use some treatments better 
And what we're coming to understand now a little more in the last few years is that maybe being a little more aggressive in how we treat alopecia is, is a good thing. And so we're coming to realize that in a person who has a patch or two of hair loss, maybe it's a slightly better plan to consider discussing with that patient to treat the alopecia, to, to, to get rid of it quicker, to see if we can grow the hair back quicker so the immune system has less time being active than giving the patient the option of, of allowing the hair to grow back spontaneously and allowing the immune system to be active longer. And so we're interested in understanding some of these, these differences and uh, how aggressive should we really be treating alopecia. Uh, and so there's a lot of really fascinating questions that, that we're looking at and that, that the alopecia research community is looking at as well. And uh, it's changing not only by the year, but it's changing by the month. So it's a really exciting time. It's really encouraging as a person with alopecia to hear you talk about all these exciting things that are happening. So, you know, even if someone is listening to this and is maybe frustrated with their treatment or feels like there isn't a treatment, it feels really good as a person with alopecia to know how much is going on and to know that sort of our understanding of the disease is increasing. So this has been a lot of information about all these awesome treatments and all the different things you can try what what advice would you give to someone if, you know, they hear you mention a treatment and they're kind of interested in it and they want to know more information, what would you suggest that they do? I think it's really important to sit down and have a, a discussion with, with one's physician. But before that, I think it's it's a good idea to look online for some good resources and the Canadian Alopecia Areata Foundation, the National Alopecia Areata Foundation, uh, have a lot of great resources for patients to, to understand some of these treatments because by, by going into your meeting with your physician, you're, you come armed with a lot of knowledge and that, that really is helpful in deciding whether these treatments are, are right for you or not. I think when whenever one is thinking about treatment, you have to think about the four-letter acronym that I like to use is the SAFE acronym, S-A-F-E. And a treatment is best if it's safe, that's the letter S, it's affordable, that's the letter A, feasible, that's the letter F, and it's effective, that's the letter E. And so as you're thinking about a treatment, it has to be safe, S-A-F-E. If we have a treatment that works really well, but it's incredibly expensive, that may not be the right option at the get-go. But if we have a treatment that's pretty safe, it's quite affordable, it's easy to do, and gee, it seems to work really well, then, you know, that's really the first line treatment. And so many of my patients come in and they say, you know, I'd like to start a JAK inhibitor. And uh, my, my feeling is that, you know, that, that's great that you're so knowledgeable about it. And it may turn out at the end of today's meeting that that is the option for you. But let's review everything together, and if it turns out that, you know, I think for you, the use of a topical steroid and topical minoxidil are, are incredibly likely to help you grow back your hair, then that's a better option for that patient than starting a JAK inhibitor, which is extremely expensive and carries with it side effects. And so this SAFE principle is really the governing principle of my practice. 
I think that understanding what are the chances that a treatment will work is really important. And so I think patients should have some idea about how well is this likely to work? How safe is it? You know, can I do it? And the other thing that's really important is to keep in mind that some of these treatments may be needed lifelong. And so we don't yet have a cure for alopecia, but we have treatments that can work for some patients. For some patients, we can get the hair growing and then we can reduce the medication. But for some patients, we can't. And we have to keep the medication on board lifelong in order to keep the immune system calmed down. And so it's important as patients think about starting some of these medications that they factor in things like insurance coverage and do they have coverage for this? Will they have coverage in the future? Uh, are they thinking about pregnancy? Um, if a woman is thinking about pregnancy in a year, it may affect the treatments we start now versus if she's thinking about pregnancy five or 10 years from now. And so that's an important factor. Other health conditions that are, pre are present. So if someone has a history of cancer and they come and see me or they have a history of certain types of infections that are still going on in the body, we might not want to weaken the immune system in that patient. And so I think if patients come armed with a lot of knowledge, it can really go a long way to having some real fruitful discussions with their physicians. And uh, the Canadian Alopecia Areata Foundation and NAF can really give the patient a lot of resources to, uh, to, to set them up for a good knowledgeable discussion. Wow, that really in itself is quite the resource for for people who who maybe just kind of started out with alopecia recently or even people who've had it for years. Before we kind of end off, I would be remiss to not ask you about alopecia and alopecia awareness. I think you do an amazing job and Sarah and I have been following your Instagram and you know you sharing different research that you've that you've come out with or different insights or observations how important is that to you and and why do you really why do you get involved in that aspect of the community you know i think it's so incredibly important to educate the public on on alopecia and various forms of hair loss i think it's important that uh, the public is aware of uh, of alopecia and, and what patients experience. And, and that's from all age groups. In children, I think it's really important that we get these messages into schools uh, so that teachers are aware of alopecia. And we've come a long way in the last 10 to 15 years in, in educating teachers and having resources available to schools for teachers when they do have a student with alopecia. And many children can now wear hats in class if they want. And so I have many, many high school students that have, you know, permission slips that if they want to wear their hat in class, they can. But, you know, more than that, just creating awareness that hair loss affects people. And it's not just, you know, you know, you have hair loss, you know, just deal with it, get over it. That, that, that's not what this is about. It's about educating patients in terms of the profound impact that, that hair loss has and that, that hair is fundamental to what we are as human beings. It affects our, our self-esteem and our emotions and, and just getting this message out so that the public is more aware and it, it becomes a part of our, our knowledge base. 
Um, and certainly in adults, there's, there's so many patients that are, are emotionally affected by alopecia and, and the numbers are enormous. Um, right from their, the way they feel about their, themselves to their interpersonal relationships, uh, their decisions whether to go out tonight or not go out tonight, their decision where to work or what job to have or what job not to have, uh, how to position their office desk or not position their office desk. You know, this has a profound impact on patients. And the more we can do to, to educate people, the more we, we're going to do to you know, improve people's lives, but the more we're going to do to uh, increase research in this area and um, the more research in this area as we've seen in the last 10 years, the, the sooner we're going to arrive at that ultimate uh, uh, treatment, which, which helps people. And so there's just so many aspects of this disease that are uh, important to me outside of just, just the treatment. And um, I think we can certainly do a, a much better job in this area, but so we still have a long way to go. It, it's raising awareness and just helping people to understand that alopecia affects people in, in, in dramatic ways. And uh, we, need to be, we need to be very aware of this. I think through, you know, the outreach work that you're doing and everything you're doing, you're, you're really helping so many people, those who have alopecia and, you know, the loved ones of people who have alopecia who are all affected by this disease. And uh, before we wrap up, I just want to hear from you, you know, why, why do you do this? And, and what does it feel like for you to, to be um, doing what you do? You know, it's just such an incredible honor to be involved in, in helping people. And the reason that I became involved in, in hair loss from the beginning is the feeling that you get when you help someone improve their hair. It really can't be put into words, but it's an incredible feeling to be part of that journey. And we are successful uh, a good part of the time, um, but we also fail you know, some of the time as well. And I think that's what uh, humbles us to, to come back tomorrow and, and, and figure this out even more and do a better job. But it's, it's a really great honor to be, to be part of uh, this journey that people have. And that's what, uh, that's what drew me here. Amazing. Well, I have to say thank you so much, Dr. Donovan, for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, it's been so great to hear all this amazing information from you. And I think it's going to be a really amazing resource for people who listen to the podcast who have a lot of questions. And yeah, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks very much for having me. I, I really uh, enjoyed this conversation and we'll have to do it again soon. And that's it for this episode of The Alopecia Project. A big thank you goes out to Dr. Donovan for taking the time to chat with us. And of course, to all of you for listening. Make sure to follow The Alopecia Project on Instagram and Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. See you next time.